Welcome to today's episode of The Power of Reinvention. I'm Kathy Sharp Ross, and we're here to talk with my guests about the dreams, the visions, and the passions that individuals have every day and dare to explore them. Whether it's business or personal, you're entitled to live the life that you want, and no matter the circumstances, you have the power to create success, fulfill your dreams, and live with passion. That's what I'm talking about. So dare greatly and happy reinventing, folks. Let's do this. Welcome. I'm Kathy Sharp-Ross, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my guest, Rachel Feldman, who is on my podcast today. This is a very exciting moment because Rachel and I have known each other for quite a long time. Our sons were playing baseball together in high school. We were sitting side by side in the bleachers back in the day and really had an opportunity to connect to get to know each other and have been friends ever since. We don't get to spend enough time together. But since our boys now live together, they have an apartment, a bunch of boys all hanging out, we get to kind of live vicariously through that connection and stay connected to one another. I'm particularly excited for Rachel to be here today because we are going to talk about an extraordinary project that she is involved with. I'm going to share a little bit on her background in a moment. For those who don't know, um, the Power of Reinvention podcast started because I launched a book in March in 2020, a week before the pandemic sent us all scurrying home to work and shelter and live at home for the last 14 months. The book is called Reinvent Your Life. Life, what are you waiting for? And I also, because of that, could not go on book tours. So I launched the Reinvention Virtual Chat series, of which I did the 94th episode this week. And it's extraordinary. I have had the opportunity, as many of us have, to kind of turn the lemons into lemonade, to find the silver lining and the extra breathing room and the pause button and the space to just lean into one of the most important conversations of the last year and a half that any of us have been having about pivoting and reinventing and really figuring out what our lives are all about, what they mean, what our purpose is, and how we want to go forward from here. So to me, it's been a blessing to have conversations with the most amazing people for the last year and a half and discover and inspire and talk through challenges and risks and rewards and everything that comes with this topic. So this podcast for me, starting uh, just in January of this year, became that next level of conversation with profound and wonderful, beautiful people that have come into my life to really do that for our audience. So I'm going to share a little bit about Rachel, just so you know who we're talking to today. Can I just interrupt for one second? Of course you may. You are amazing. You're amazing. Aww. I mean, I don't think we need to have a podcast. You just did it. You did the whole thing, Kathy. You're <laughs> remarkable. Anyway, Thank keep you. going. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. Well, good. Rachel is a director and screenwriter currently in pre-production on Lily. This is a political thriller to star Oscar-nominated Patricia Clarkson and Emmy-nominated Thomas Sadowski based on the remarkable life of fair pay icon Lily Ledbetter. 
And for anybody, I'll just give you right now and we'll repeat it later. But if you're looking for information to understand and know more about Lily Ledbetter, if you're really not aware, there is a website, which is lilymovie.com. That's Lily with two L's, Lily with a Y. Um, And we'll repeat this later, but I just I want people to really have a chance to dig in and connect and know and understand because her story is extraordinary and so relevant today. But Rachel just optioned her award-winning pilot, Dr. Novak, to Mike Benavoy's Phoenix Films as well. So a lot going on in her world, and we're going to dig into that. She's a veteran television director with more than 70 credits in dramatic series. She recently directed multiple episodes of Blue Bloods, The Rookie, Criminal Minds, and the pilot and full season of The Baxters. She's written and directed movies for Lifetime, Freeform, ABC Family, and the Sci-Fi Channel. She's an advocate for women directors and former chairman, chairwoman of the chair of the DGA's Women Steering Committee. She's been interviewed in many documentaries about gender equity in the film industry, such as This Changes Everything, which was produced by Gina Davis, Amy Adrian's Half the Picture, and Bloomberg TV's celluloid ceilings. So, wow, talk about being fabulous. Rachel, you have spent your life working on incredible projects, fulfilling a lot of your passions, but also really, um, I think, taking a hard look out of not necessarily desire, but out of necessity about these women's issues in Hollywood as well. Before we go right into that conversation, I want to kind of take you back a little in time. I want to kind of discover who was who was little Rachel. What did you dream about doing when you were going to be bigger? Um, you know, I always say when you grow up, but I don't think any of us really grow up. <laughs> we grow, but we may not grow up altogether. Um, but was there a twinkle in your eye for what you're doing now? Or is this kind of a newfound, was there a left turn, an aha moment, as I call them, a, a big reinvention moment? at some point in your life or, or many of them, perhaps. Sure. sure. Thank you for having me, Kathy. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. So much fun. Um, so I'm one of these people who kind of knew what I wanted from right out of the box. Uh, I am a person who lives in my imagination. Um, I have a big imagination that takes me all over the place. And I learned very early on whether, you know, whether because I am the youngest child of three and I have two older brothers that were constantly playing with one another. So I was left out because I didn't want to play the kinds of things that they played. And I played by myself or whether it was because I was very close with my mother and my mother was a lover of movies and she didn't know it then. And I certainly didn't, we didn't know the word cineast, but my mother was really a, 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 a student of films and uh, particularly of the great films of the thirties and forties. And so even as a little girl, and this is before they were DVDs, you know, before they were art house uh, cinemas, my mother used to wake me up in the middle of the night to see great films that she felt that I needed to see because I was going to love them. And I would have a glass of chocolate milk and buttered matzah if it was the springtime. And we would watch, you know, How Green Was My Valley or Now Voyager or Pinky or any of the great social justice movies and great dramas, melodramas, her time. And so I grew up with that appetite as early as four or five years old. And 
my mother had been a Borscht Belt singer, so she was a frustrated performer herself. And I wanted to, I thought I wanted to be an actor. I loved these movies and I wanted my face to be on this big giant screen. And my mother was happy to accommodate that. So it became, you know, we lived in New York City at the time and I became a working actor at the age of five and worked for a good 12, 13 years. I did um, hundreds of television commercials by the time I was 15. And I became kind of well-known because I could hit my mark and find my key light. I knew my lines. I wasn't a problem personality. I don't know that I was very talented, but, um, you know, when you're a child actor and you can do those other things, uh, it it, it takes you far. Believe it or not, I was known as the ethnic child in those days because Because I have have brown hair. I have brown hair. I'm not a blonde. Wow. Blonde, blue-eyed. So that made me ethnic. I was the ethnic child. So I got a lot of commercials done. And um, I was also very adept at voices. So I can talk baby talk. And I can sound like a witch. You know, and I can do all these crazy things with my voice. And I've always enjoyed doing that. So, you know, as a young child, they would cast me to do voiceovers. And I became the first first voice of Lucy. And you know, working with technicians on the other side of the glass with me, you know, being a child and having headphones on. And I was a good reader and I was a good cold reader. So, you know, when you're doing ADR, which is looping for other actors, you get to look at it a couple of times. So you see how their lips smack together and you see the dialogue in front of you printed on a piece of page. And then there's a beep, beep, beep. And you have to know exactly when to come in and say the line so that it works with their lips. I don't know why, for whatever reason, I'm very good at it. Wow. <laughs> and so I became sort of the go-to kid to do ADR and characters and all of that stuff. And I loved it. So that sensibility of me being, you know, five, six, seven, eight, and thinking of myself as a technician, you know, with an engineer on the other side of the glass who would be directing me, you know, I think that really shaped and formed me. It's like, I don't want to be an actor anymore. Ugh, I didn't want to wear that that uncomfortable pancake makeup and those itchy costumes. I didn't, don't look at me anymore, you know? And so I think from all those years of being on sets and saying to the cameraman, because they were always men in those days, can I look through the viewfinder? You know, I didn't know the language of, is it a close-up? is it a medium shot, is it a wide shot? But I knew, am I small in the frame? Am I big in the frame? Is it just my wow. face? Wow, so you had real context. I did, I did. And I knew about blocking and I knew about hitting marks and I knew about lighting. And so, you know, by the time I was a teenager, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I didn't really know what that meant because I also draw and paint. And um, I also was writing stories. And it wasn't until I was a senior in college, if you can believe it, that I had an epiphany. I had that aha moment when I read an article in the New York Times about international women film film directors. It was about Agnes Varda and Lena Vertmuller, you know, French, German, English women, because in those countries, you know, the arts are 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 are. Uh, Get, there's given money from the government. You know, we don't have that in the United States, so we don't grow artists. Right. But in Europe, they grow artists with right. their grant money. Right. And so there are all these international women directors. And I literally thought, okay, I like acting and I know about acting. I know about visuals because I've been studying photography and drawing all these years. I know about stories because I've been studying creative writing. I want to be a director. And it, I, I was 18 years old wow. when it occurred to me, even Amazing. though... 
I had been in the business all my life. So Gina Davis likes to say she can't be it if she can't see it. You know, yes. she has to see it to be it. Yes. So that was my journey. And that's when I thought, okay, I'm going to go to graduate school and I'm going to become a film director. Um, so that was the beginnings of my journey. And so precious because you had the perspective now as a director and a producer and all that you're doing in, in, in your world right now, um, you know, to know what it's like. You have the empathy for everybody in that room, you know, from the actor to the cameraman. You, you speak the language. You've grown up with these words in your vernacular your whole life, which is pretty unusual and really cool. And it makes a lot of sense. And I didn't know that about the earlier version of Rachel. So I love hearing this story myself for the first time. That's really awesome. Um, so what was that like for you then trying to break into the business. I mean, you know, Hollywood's a funny place, uh, not necessarily funny haha all the time. Um, so what was that journey like for you? Well, so, you know, as a girl who grew up in the 60s and 70s, you know, I had a sense of, you know, our bodies, ourselves, you know, we were independent women. We thought we could do anything. You know, my mother raised me to think, be a confident woman. And she told me that I should live with a man for many years before I married him. So I, I came from a very liberal perspective. And I, so I graduated from film school and I had a, a multi-award winning short film. There had been 70 of us in the beginning of the program, there were only seven of us who graduated three years later, and I was the only one to have finished my thesis film. I thought, okay, like I'm good at this. And I won all these awards. I got agents at William Morris. It was William Morris before it was WME. I thought, okay, I'm launched. This is going to be good. I'm going to do it. And then I went on a lot of meetings and just absolutely could not get a job and saw all the young men who had skipped class and hadn't finished their films and hadn't graduated working like crazy. And then I realized it wasn't just me. It was a lot of the women in my class. This is not a personal thing. And that's really the first time that it occurred to me that this was gendered in any kind of way. Mm -hmm. um, and no one was speaking of it, of course. And so you weren't quite sure if it was a person, am I untalented? Did I do something wrong? Is, am I not, you know, you, you know, and then when I moved to Los Angeles a couple of years later, so I moved up. So I, I started making independent films by getting grants from the National Endowment, from the American Film Institute. And I continued to make my own short films while working for big directors and studio movies as their storyboard artist and personal assistant. Mm -hmm. And I did that on like five or six movies. I like to call that my PhD because it was really <laughs> sure. educational. Yeah. Um, and this was before there was Sex in the City in New York, a Law and Order. There was virtually no production in New York unless it was a scrappy little low budget independent movie, which many of my friends were doing. But I didn't know how to raise money. I didn't want to become a money raiser. I, I wanted to work. Yeah. And I didn't understand the distinction between sort of being a director for hire and being an independent filmmaker, which means you had to raise that money yourself. It exactly. wasn't nobody was going to hire you to do it. So during that period of time, I realized that I had to park my ass in the seat, if you'll excuse the expression, <laughs> and put in 10,000 hours of practice and become a writer because the only way to become a director was to become umbilically attached to good, high quality material. And so I was, I had some lucky breaks as a writer and I optioned my very, very first scripts out of the box. And then I learned about development hell. So even though I was umbilically attached to them, didn't necessarily mean anything for me as a director if they weren't gonna get made. 
And that's when I moved to Los Angeles. And um, it still took many, many years to get hired on my very first professional gig, which was Doogie Hauser MD. Um, That was my first show that I directed. Love that. Thank you. But by the time, you know, when, by the time I was in Los Angeles, I became a member of the Directors Guild of America and I met other women directors like me who are having the exact same issues. So that's when I was absolutely sure that it wasn't personal and it was political and it was gendered. And that's what led me on the way to becoming an activist. And at what point in your life did the story of Lily Ledbetter start to bubble into your psyche? How how was that, that this came into your world? Because we're going to really dig into this a little bit. It, it is so about the here and now, for both for you, but the world that we are living in. And, you know, this, this pay gap, gender inequality, I mean, all of these issues that we're dealing with every day. And thankfully, there's a lot of voices around this, but it's just not enough to have a quick enough impact on the issues. So how did this come into your life? Um, I will tell you how it came into my life. But before I tell you that, I want to just say that I think that a impactful um, effective, successful motion picture, a popcorn movie that the, that the audience loves is probably the single most effective way to change hearts and minds. So I'm a storyteller. This is why I'm a storyteller. For many reasons, I love telling stories. But if we don't tell stories that are about things that are going to affect our culture in some way, what is the point of being a storyteller? Yeah. So I will just start the story with that personal perspective. Yeah. So um, I have always uh, come at life through a perspective of justice. I come from a family where my grandparents, who were immigrants to this country, were um, were union organizers before they could even speak English. Right. Uh, you know, when my mother was dying of uh, and had uh, dementia and could no longer remember that she had children, she remembered the lyrics to labor march songs, wow. which included the address of where everyone was going to meet for the rally. Um, this is embedded in my DNA. Yeah. And though not from a feminist perspective, because, you know, as Jews, yeah. we don't sort of look at the world from that feminist perspective. So it was really my maturation to realize that that story about justice also was a, a woman's story. So, you know, I went to a woman's college. I was so naive that I thought that women's studies in college meant that you had to be a lesbian to take these courses. I, mean, I honestly was that dumb. I did not understand. I have a feeling you're not alone in that. I think, you know, especially back in the day, that probably was the case for a lot of people. Right now, I'd like to get a PhD in women's studies, but yeah. you know, that moment yeah. has passed. I think I probably have developed well, it. Well, I was going to say, I think you do yeah. have that yeah. at this point. Yeah. So um, I was like everybody else where by this time I was very woke. I first started writing my first write articles about, about gender equality in the film business. You know, in I think my first Variety article was published in 1999 or 2000. Um, and I was watching the Democratic Convention where, where it was Hillary and, and Barack Obama at the same time, 2008. That was 2008. And... 
at the convention, this Alabama woman came out to speak about her plight being an Alabama tire factory supervisor and how she had been cheated of a salary. And I was just watching it with my husband sitting on the couch like the rest of us. And there was something about that woman. Talk about an epiphany. There was something about that woman with her bleach blonde hair and her deep Alabama accent that I'm doing a terrible job of, 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 <laughs> of, of you know, emulating. There was something about her. And I, I just grabbed my husband's arm and I said, I've got to track down the story. I've got to track down the story. Now, keep in mind, Kathy, I'm not a person that really likes reality as a storyteller. I tell all kinds of crazy stories, yeah. right? I, I write thrillers. I write about serial killers. I write musicals and, and teenage romance. Uh, yeah. Reality has never really particularly interested me. Right. But there was something about that Appalachian sound that brought me like deep into my memories of coal miner's daughter, how green was my valley, wow. you know, that coal mining, poor American story or an Irish story of poor families just struggling to survive. And I saw it and I heard it, you know, in a flash. And so the very next day I tracked her down. I don't remember how I found her, but I found her and I called her up and got her on the phone. She picked up the phone. She said, I don't talk to people. You have to go through my lawyer. Um, my lawyer, John Goldfarb, and I tracked down John and I got John on the phone and he's a civil rights attorney in Birmingham, Alabama. And lucky for me, he had gone to film school before he had gone to law wow. school and he's a movie lover. And we just hit it off. And I said, you know, I really, really, really want to get the rights to this. And he said, you know, Rachel, I just want to tell you, every studio in town is coming after these rights for a lot of money. And, and Lily's about to write a book and we think it's going to be a bestseller. And, you know, right. anyway. You're like, what are you thinking, lady? <laughs> so I did not get the rights at the moment. But four years later, I noticed nobody had made this movie. So I went back to John Goldfarb four years later. So do you remember me? He said, I do. I said, well, how are you doing with the book? How are you doing with the sales? And he said, you know, Lily didn't really like any of the studios or the executives or filmmakers who would come up forward. So, well, she's going to like me. <laughs> um, and they kind of put me through a wonderful trial by fire and I passed every test with flying colors. And I, this was oh, nine so years. You were so authentically connected. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. And, and, and I, it was my passion, you know, yeah. and I said, look, I promise you, I'm not a studio, right? I'm not a studio. I'm not a network. I'm not a famous person. I'm not a director of any kind of renown, but I am a real director who has put in dozens of decades, you know, dozens of years and a couple of decades to my career. I know what I'm doing. And I can only assure you and promise you that if you give me the rights to this, I will lit, eat, breathe, and sleep the story until I've gotten made. So it's nine years later. I have kept my promise. We are about to go into production. Incredible. So how did Patricia Clarkson become your star of this show? I mean, of this movie. This is incredible to have that, the quality of talent that you are bringing to this. Yes. So as a non-celebrity director in Hollywood, it's tough. And quite frankly, I don't even have an agent at this time because the agents that I was working with only wanted to niche me in broadcast television dramas. I don't want to just do 
broadcast. I understand from a financial perspective that works for them because they can have me working all the time and they can make money. Mm-hmm. But from a career perspective, that's not what I want to do. So I, I broke with them. So to, to be me and not have representation is very difficult. I, so I can relate to that. And I just, I want to sort of really acknowledge what you've just shared with us the nose, the rejection, the the challenges, the walls that have gone up. Yes. Right? And yet here you sit today, you were persistent, you believed in it, you you dared to pick up that phone that first time. You made that connection. And I think so many people that are listening to this podcast that are you know, they dream. We all, we're all dreamers. We dream in one way or another about something in our lives that we want, that we want to create, that we want to do, that we want to build for ourselves. And yes, there will be roadblocks and yes, there will be challenges and people that will say no, but here you are four years later, you go back to him and you say, how about now? And it just, the persistence and the passion and the need to hold on to your dreams is so important. And, you know, likewise, I independently published my book and I knocked on some doors and I said, does anybody want to represent me? This is the story. I've been working on it. I've been out there blogging and sharing content and interviewing people about reinventing their lives for years now. And, you know, I wasn't getting the reaction that I wanted. And as someone who runs a global marketing agency, I just thought, okay, how difficult can this be? I produce events for a living. I manage other careers and businesses and companies and clients. I got a team. I'm going to figure this out. I don't need to wait around in this day and age for a publishing company to want to take on my book. I used to do PR for publishing um, companies and worked with a lot of famous authors. And I knew that even at the end of the day, we'd still have to hire a team to work on really promoting it and getting it out there. So, you know, that ability to have confidence in oneself and to surround ourselves with the best possible people to fulfill our dreams is so important. It absolutely is. And I'd also like to speak to the fact that you and I are in a entitled position in that we don't have to go get a job in a tire factory. Yeah. And, you know, I'd like to speak to the people who support us in our personal lives. You know, my husband, for instance, that all these years that I have been pushing and tenacious and dogged, and you're absolutely right, I would not have been able to do that if I needed to go work as a clerk in Ralph's. So um, it takes it takes a team. It takes a team. Um, But the next step in this scrappy journey is that I knew without representatives representation, and this is the reason why I mentioned it, I was going to have to go around the system and figure out another way to break it. And so I found out where I, I got Meryl Streep's address and I wrote her a letter through the mail with a stamp on it. And uh, I asked her if she would read my script because I figured she would know who Lily Ledbetter was. And she wrote, she wrote me an email back and she said, I will read your script I will tell you right now, I am not going to play Lily Ledbetter. So that was very nice of her to let me know up front. Right. I've done this kind of part too many times. Right. I feel like I'm too old for the part, but I will read your script. I sent her the script. She wrote me back the most glorious, beautiful five-page letter. She loved the script. And she said, what do you need? How can I help you? Wow. And I said, what I need is access to brilliant actors. Because you were asking me about Patricia Clarkson. 
Yep. She said, I will introduce you to my agent at CAA and I will consider myself the godmother of this movie and he will consider himself the godfather of your movie. Amazing. I hung up, you know, I turned off my computer five minutes later, the phone rang. It was Meryl Streep's agent from CAA who said, I'm the godfather of your movie. Oh God, I just got chills. And he did. And he did. And I said, I want to go to Patricia Clarkson. And fortunately, she was represented at CAA. And, you know, it's not quite as simple a story. Yeah. It was complicated. Yeah, I'm sure. But it, 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 it ended up with a very happy story. And the wonderful, sweet thing about Patricia is not only is Patricia political, not only was she well aware of Lily and Lily's story, right. but she is the daughter of a, con- of a, of a councilwoman from New Orleans, her mother had been a councilwoman in New Orleans for 25 years, fighting for girls and women and family. My goodness. And so she's the fifth youngest daughter of this Congresswoman, um, um, Jackie Clarkson, who's devoted her life to this. So Patty was in heaven to be able to- Like like really fulfilling that legacy as well, which is amazing. So- that's one piece of the journey in making a film, but yes. there's another one called yes. raising money yes. and getting the money to produce a film is no easy feat. And, you know, I always, I have this expression just because you make a great meatball does not mean you should run a restaurant. <laughs> and, you know, it's true. Like you have an art, a skill, a talent, all that you bring to this and everything we've been discussing, but raising money, that's a whole other animal. You guys and you and your team have successfully raised a significant amount of money to date, but you're still raising money. You're getting ready to green light the project and get into production. Talk a little bit about that. And I think again, relatable on so many levels, every entrepreneur that is out there with a business plan, whether it's on the back of a napkin or a 30 page deck who is passionate about what they want to do for a living, but need the money, the funding, the mentors, the people. Let's talk a bit about that journey and that experience and where you are today and who out there may be hearing this going, wow, I want to be a part of this journey and story and, you know, how they can even be a part of it at this point. So can we dig into that a little bit? Yeah. And thank you for asking, because I actually haven't talked about this before. It's the first time I'm really talking about this. And I'm very excited to, because this is a new journey for me, you know, because I have been a director for hire my whole career. I've, you know, directed more than 75 hours of network television. I've directed television movies and cable movies. And I'm a for hire director, even if it's my script, it's, it's their project. So just to clarify for your audience who may not know the difference that independent movies are movies where the filmmakers themselves have to raise the money themselves. Now, sometimes and quite often it's a conglomeration, you know, it's both, but we're not making a movie with the studio. We're not making a movie with a streamer or a network or even a distribution company. So I had gone down the journey, as I said, this is a nine year journey when I first started with some major, major studio producers, major people, Academy Award winning, beautiful, famous producers. And if I mentioned their names, you would all go, oh my God, that, that right, one? right. And they were all sort of like, well, this is kind of an interesting project. I mean, women are kind of in the news. Let me see what I can do with it. And they would put it on a pile of 50 scripts and it would be me every month. Like, Hey, it's me again. Hello. Anything with my movie? Hello. It's me. Remember me, you know, and not getting your emails back. Right. And, and then little by little by little, they don't answer you at all. 
And then you really, you know, you see the writing on the wall and go, these people are not really that interested in me or my movie. I'm going to take it away and I'm going to go to the next one. So like an idiot and a rat on a wheel, I did that over and over and over again a couple of times. And each time I'd nab one of these big fat cats and go, oh, this is the one. No, it never worked. So finally, I met a fellow who actually lives nearby. We have a million mutual friends. I don't know, for whatever reason, we never met. And he himself has produced over 50 independent feature films, meaning he has raised millions of dollars for 50 independent movies, including most recently The Chicago 7. Um, another wonderful movie that I loved, which called my attention to him, was The Kids Are All Right. You know, wow. he has some... Serious yeah. independent film cred. And we met and we sat down. We really liked each other. He loved my script. And uh, I said, okay, I think we're going to have to mom and pop this. He said, I agree. And I know how to do that. And I said, great, because I do not. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very interesting, Kathy, how serendipity works, you know, yeah. that I received a phone call from a high school friend that I had not spoken to since the day I graduated from high school, Judith Schwartz. And Judith said, I see on Facebook that you're about to make a movie about Lily Ledbetter. And, you know, I live in Palo Alto and I have a lot of very progressive, wealthy friends who are, might be interested in investing in your movie. Are you looking for investor, investors? <laughs> and this, is before, this is before we created an LLC. This is literally the day after Todd and I decided we were going to do this. Okay. Talk about the shared, right? Yeah. So I say to Todd, do you know anybody in Palo Alto? He said, do I know anybody in Palo Alto? I went to Stanford. I got an MBA at Stanford. I ran a theater company in Stanford. I know half the town in Palo Alto. So the two of us who barely knew each other got on a plane and stayed in Judith Schwartz's house over the weekend. And we had the best time and we left with our seed money. Okay. We raised the seed money in her living room, breakfast, lunch, and dinner done. So Todd and I now had enough money to hire a lawyer, create an LLC, hire a casting director, um, you know, get budgets done, get a schedule done, do a scout, all the things that you need to do in order to get your movie really off the ground, as well as do decks for investors. And then little, he knew one person, I knew one person, a, a producer, he knew a producer. And within weeks, we had a team of five people who all wanted to be executive producers on this film. You had to raise at least a million dollars to be an executive producer. You have to raise $2.5 million to be a full producer. And Over COVID, we were very assiduous. We had several Zooms with Lily Ledbetter herself. Some had over 100 people on them. And we have raised our budget by doing this. And we are about to green light our movie. We're going to break escrow next week. Uh, We are looking for a little bit more. So we are looking for a few more equity investors. And another thing that we've done, which is so interesting, is one of our producers, Simone Pirro, who produced The Tale with Laura Duran a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. She said she has a company called Impact Pictures, and she's all about, as are a handful of films, making commercial, you know, um, commercial popular movies that also have a social impact. Yes, absolutely. And so we created an impact campaign that will accompany this film. And we're raising money not only through equity, but also through donations. So we have a fiscal sponsor called the Film Collaborative. And and whereas as a as an equity investor, there's a threshold. You can only invest a certain, you know, at a certain level. Right. With the nonprofit contributions, people can make contributions at any level. We've been very fortunate that several family 
uh, offices and several foundations have come in it on, on a very large basis. Right. And, and nearly a quarter of our budget will be this kind of contribution. So that's where we are. It's been an incredible process. Talk about team. I have the most remarkable team now that, you know, in the beginning, it was just me. And then it was me and Todd. And now it's David and Simone and Jothi and Kelly and Kate. And, you know, we're on a Zoom every week. And what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And, you know, now that we have money in the bank, we've also hired a line producer. I just did location scouting. We're hiring a director of photography. It's really exciting. The movie is coming together. and We're going to be shooting in October. It's Unbelievable. I mean, I literally have goosebumps. And, you know, I've been privileged enough to meet some of the people that are in your team. I, you know, we had a call, you introduced me to this woman who is spearheading the And Rise Impact campaign. And I happened to be, you know, in the city she was in at the same time a week later, and we got to meet in person and sit and talk about it. And I was blown away because what I love is that that is also helping getting get the dialogue going if it's not already with major brands that have a chance to step up and really speak to this issue and support the film and all that you're going to do when you launch it it's increasing the dialogue and the conversation which needs to happen every day the pressure the impact that is happening in corporate america for women on so many levels that conversation needs to change and the perfect storm of all that you're doing with all these various entities and you know look, frankly just listening to you explain all these different ways that you're raising money that i can make a contribution and feel like i'm doing my part to support the narrative out there is pretty unique and I don't think a lot of people realize, and again, anybody out there trying to raise money for a business, trying to st you know stand up behind something that is such a such issue oriented that needs a voice, that there are so many ways to come at it. There are so many points of entry, and when you really start to put it out there into the universe, as you did we just manifest these incredible people that come into our world and our lives that are going to enable it. And it's not without the struggle and the challenge and the hard work and the sleepless nights and oh, everything, yeah. but that is also part of the passion of what we do and what we love. And it's amazing. I, I just want to ask you and we'll put it in the show notes and, you know, absolutely um, just make sure that people know how to reach and support what you're doing. But the, the movie website is why don't you just share some of the key yeah. ways that people can connect on this? Because I so think the movie, web, the movie website will explain all of this and more and, and tell you how you can contribute and how you can reach us. It's www.lilymovie.com. Com. And Lily has two L's and a Y. Um, L-I-L-L-Y movie. Yep, L-I-L-L-Y movie.com. And I, I feel like we would be remiss if I didn't do a two-minute breakdown of why Lily's story is remarkable. Please do. I'd like to tell Lily's story. Please do. So first of all, there's a beautiful, beautiful book called Grace and Grit written. It's a memoir of Lily's life written by Lily and Lanier Scott Isom. It's a truly a remarkable book. Um and it, it's written in a way that's a real Southern yarn. But basically the story is that Lily was born in 1938 in Possum Trot, Alabama, on what she describes as a dirt farm uh, with no electricity and no running water 
where she had to step over snakes in the middle of the night at the age of three years old to go to the outhouse, where she worked at the age of eight years old in the cotton fields, picking cotton for pennies, and was born to a cold mother in a very, very dysfunctional, difficult family. But she was a smart girl with an imagination. She loved Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. She loved ballroom dancing. She dreamed one day of being a lawyer in Washington, D.C. and orating in front of people. And even though she came from zero means, absolute abject, abject poverty, she had the ability to see beyond that. She was very fortunate to fall in love with, at the age of 17 to a, a wonderful boy, Charles Ledbetter, with whom she had a full life, who really dug her. He loved her. And he himself was not really an ambitious guy, but he had grown up in this sort of community of, you know, in the 1940s and 50s Alabama where women weren't supposed to work and women weren't supposed to be outspoken. And it took him a couple of years to adjust. But when Lily said, I want to work, I want to help us dig out of poverty. I want our children to go to college. I want a car. I want a house that doesn't leak. He finally allowed her the freedom and the flexibility and to get the power within herself to get to work. And she was very good in math. She immediately got a job at H&R Block. And within no time, she was a manager of eight different H&R Blocks without a college education, mind you. This girl you know, graduated from high school. And she was managing eight H&R Blocks. But they didn't pay overtime. And she resented it. And so she got a job at the Goodyear Tire Factory that was enlisting women for their supervisor jobs. And she thought this was the best paying job in the county. It was. It was the best paying job at the county. And she was willing to work night shift, even though she had two growing children, in order to bring home a good paycheck to her family. Cut to 19 years and eight months later. She's almost retiring. She has worked in this toxic community of cruelty, in not only toxic environmentally, but filled with sexual right? harassment oh. of every kind, every single day of her life. And she endures it for the paycheck. And then someone slips her a note when she finds out that she's being paid nearly half of what the men have earned all these 20 years, including, you know, including all of her fringes and benefits and all that social security that she's missing. And so she's so furious, she goes to a lawyer who decides to take her case on pro bono, going to be played by Thomas Sadowski, by the way. Amazing. Tony award-winning, Tony nominated actor, Thomas Sadowski. And she wins $3.8 million in that case, even though she's, it's capped at 60,000 because the, the, the jury is so infuriated. And there are only two women on that jury and she wins. Mm. But Goodyear appeals, she loses the appeal. It goes to the Supreme Court. By now there are Republicans in the White House. She loses the appeal. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg speaks to her from the bench and says, there is another way to change the law, Lily. You need to learn to convince Congress. And so she goes to Washington, D.C., you know, the ACLU, the AAUW, the Women's National Women's Law Center, all of these genius women teach her how to speak. And she lobbies for the next couple of years. And then when President Obama and Hillary Clinton are coming in together, they both promise to make fair pay a, you know, a centerpiece right. of their legislation. And then when President Obama wins, it is the very first piece of legislation that he signs, the Lilly Ledbetter yes. Fair Pay Restoration Act of 2009. And you can imagine how this woman is self-actualized. Okay, she didn't win the money, 
but she won what she had dreamed of when she was a little girl yeah. of orating in front of people and of doing something meaningful. And yeah. now she has become the woman that she always dreamed of becoming. And that's a story for all of us, no matter who we are, men, women, girls, boys, all over the world. If you have been othered, ex- you know, discriminated against, excluded, this is your story. I just don't know. I, I feel like there is nothing more I can say. <laughs> I like want to just drop mic and leave it there because that right there is just puts such a smile on my heart um, for so many of us to see you give her that space to tell that story, to share her with so many who don't realize it that may have heard that. It's so important and we can't do enough of it. And, you know, you and I both know people and have friends and colleagues and people who, you know, really, really advocate in this space from, you know, Gina Davis and Shelly Zalas and, you know, people who are really doing incredible things to change, really change, not just talk about it, but truly dig in and create the change. And, you know, I'm just so excited for you. I'm so proud to be your friend, to know you, to support you in what you're doing. That's why I was so excited to be connected with Kelly so that we could have these conversations and say, okay. And, you know, my fantasy in life has always been, I just want to win the lottery so I can do what I'm great at doing for free for people because I have 14,000 people in my Rolodex. And I'm old enough now to be so connected to everybody that matters that I can pick up the phone and say, hey, I want you to get involved in this. And so I'm here for you today saying that again, and you know that I feel this way, but it is just extraordinary. And I hope some of our friends that are out there listening to the podcast, when it's on the website, as we continue to share it, And as this project starts to roll out, um, that we can contribute financially um, through conversation, through support, because it's too important not to. And, you know, you and I are both people who have been working our entire lives, basically. And at no point do we want to see other women not getting what they deserve. I mean, it's just... It's absurd. It's absurd that we're still having the conversation, honestly. But I'm glad that we're having this conversation. Well, thank you. You know, Kathy, you are a beautiful woman and you have come through so much. And what you just said about helping others spread the word about their stories, that is your story as well. And I feel very honored and I feel a responsibility, you know, to, to Lily, yeah. to my investors, to anyone who has believed in us in making this film happen, um, this is a, this is a journey for all of us. And whether people are able to contribute or or invest, you know, I hope they'll go see the film. I hope they'll read Lily's book. I hope they'll just be inspired to help others and to support anyone who's ever in a situation that needs a sister or brother fighting for justice. Yeah. Well, 
I could not have said it better. Um, I'm going to give the website again, and it will be in the show notes. It's www.lilymovie.com. That's L-I-L-L-Y movie.com. Everything that Rachel shared about this and how you can support the film, how you can continue to follow the journey, um, connect with Anne Rise and the Impact Campaign and what they're doing. There's going to be a lot that we're going to be hearing about. I will continue to share this uh, through my newsletter, through my virtual chats, through everything that I can and connecting the dots to help really continue this conversation. And Rachel, I want to thank you so much for being here today and just having this conversation, taking the time out of your insane schedule. She literally just got back from scouting locations. I'm like, great. Can I have 30 minutes of your time on Saturday? (laughs) So pleasure. So fun. So fun. Any day, any day. And I adore you and I thank you. Thank you. And for those who are listening, um, if you want more information about my book, Reinvent Your Life, what are you waiting for? If you want to tune in to one of the 90 plus reinvention virtual chats that we've done in the last year and three months, please do. Um, You're tuned into the podcast, The Power of Reinvention. We've had 30 plus incredible stories and interviews that we've done. So feel free to check back and take a look at some of those and just get out there, live your dream. No reinvention is too big or too small. It's never too late. Just believe that you're entitled and happy reinventing everybody. And Rachel, thank you again. Big hugs. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Power of Reinvention. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Wouldn't mind a five-star review. It would be greatly appreciated. Also, be sure to visit thereinventionexchange.com to share your reinvention stories, suggest a guest, join the newsletter mailing list, get access to my book, which is called Reinvent Your Life, What Are You Waiting For?, and discover fantastic bonus content with my blogs and listen in to the Reinvention Virtual Chat series. Don't forget to join me next week for another episode. Please share with a friend and thank you for listening. Happy reinventing.